0: Hi, everyone. This is Alex Epstein, host of Power Hour. This week, we're doing another Best of Power Hour, and this is definitely one of my favorites. The guest is Edward Calabres, and the topic is the science of environmental danger. Dr. Calabres is a professor of toxicology at the uh, Department of Environmental Health Sciences in the School of Public Health at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, or at least He was. He may well be emeritus because he's had a very long and distinguished career. And the reason I like this episode so much is twofold. One is the topic and two is the guest. And so the topic of the science of environmental danger is specifically focused on the issue of thresholds of danger for exposure to a given substance. So you can think about what is the threshold at which it's dangerous to be exposed to a certain kind of nuclear radiation or the sun, or some particulate in the air that a power plant emits. And Dr. Calabrese, so I should say that's just, that itself is such an important topic and is rarely discussed with any kind of precision. People just think, oh, well, anything humans emit must be bad. And that makes no sense whatsoever. There are certain things that humans admit that are not bad at all or that are even good. And then there are things that come from nature that are bad. And it's it's all about understanding what at what threshold is this substance dangerous uh, for a given person. And one of the reasons I like Dr. Calabrese so much on this is just he's a very, very precise thinker, and he encourages us to think for ourselves. So one thing you'll notice in the interview is that he is very much encouraging us to think about the people who disagree with him, to take their argument seriously, to, uh, to read up on this issue, and then to come to our own conclusions. And I think that that conveys a lot of confidence, and it also shows his commitment to objectivity. So this week, super important topic, super important guest I hope you enjoy it. Also, you can find on Amazon now the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, the new version. So if you just look up Moral Case for Fossil Fuels revised, you can pre-order the new version, which will be coming out next August, but you can get your reserve your copy now and help it get on bestseller lists if you have any interest in that. Okay, hope you enjoy this week's episode. Power hour.
1: Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein.
0: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, let's welcome back to Power Hour. It's been a while. I really appreciate everyone who's asking me, when's the next Power Hour? Because I know a lot of you at least have listened to every episode, which I think is over 100 hours worth. So that's that's really, really cool. And from what I've seen on the internet, those of you who have listened to that much are just are just forces to be reckoned with in terms of being able to engage other people in terms of your knowledge of the facts. Uh, It's really remarkable. So I'm always happy to do Power Hour when it fits in the schedule. And today we have a new Power Hour on a new subject, which is one of the most important subjects, which I've covered a little bit in my work. I've referenced it, but we've never had an expert on this subject on Power Hour or really featured in our work anywhere. And this is the issue of dosage. Now, that might not sound that exciting, but let me assure you, it is that exciting. And I'll have more to say about this in the wrap-up. But dosage pertains to what quantity of something is dangerous and what quantity is safe and what quantity is beneficial. And I've mentioned for a while, that the way we think about dosage of different substances is incredibly irrational. And we're gonna dive into that today. There's what's called the linear no threshold hypothesis, which holds that for certain things, any dosage is bad. So there's no amount of radiation that could be good. You know, any amount of a given uh you know, any amount of particulate matter is going to contribute to cancer, uh, that kind of thing. There are other views of dosage, but what our view of dosage does is it tells us, it leads to our conclusion about what amount of something is dangerous. And because everything in life, including in industrial society, has different byproducts, it leads us to wrong conclusions about the okay amount of byproduct for a given thing. So it's a very, very, if, if you have the wrong view of dosage, if you have the view that a healthy dosage is actually unhealthy, then you can shut down all sorts of industrial progress for no reason. So today we're going to be talking to Dr. Edward Calabrese, who is, to my knowledge, the best thinker in the world, best researcher in the world on this issue of dosage. And as you'll see, he's an incredibly independent thinker, incredibly smart, and incredibly clear. So this is information that you'll see almost nowhere, and I think you'll be blown away by how wrong the way our entire society, including the whole government apparatus, thinks about how wrong it is that the way they think about dosage, the way we've been taught to think about it. And, thus, and this has huge implications for uh, the status of all these different reports you hear about, oh, X is causing cancer. You'll see that the foundation of this turns out to be totally bogus and that there's much better ways of thinking about dosage ways that lead to very surprising conclusions, such as that certain amounts of things that are considered bad are actually good. So, hopefully that intrigues you. We'll be back with Dr. Ed Calabrese on the other side.
1: Power hour, Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
0: We are joined now by Dr. Ed Calabrese, Professor of Toxicology at the Department of Environmental Health Sciences in the School of Public Health at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Dr. Calabrese, welcome to Power Hour. Thank
1: Thank you very much.
0: All right. Now, you're an expert in a topic that I'm fascinated by and that has come up in a lot of different ways as we've talked about nuclear power and different kinds of Uh, different kinds of emissions over time, um, which is the issue of thresholds. And to start off with, uh, I'm interested in knowing about the prevailing approach to thresholds, which is called uh, LNT. Can you tell us what LNT is and uh, where it came from?
1: Yeah, LNT stands for Linear Non-Threshold, and it describes a a dose-response relationship in which the response is directly proportionate to dose, which essentially means that uh, there is an effect along the entire um, dose continuum. If you were to look at it from a radiation point of view, it would suggest that there is a response even down to a single ionization. If it were a chemical, it would be uh, down to a, a single chemical. Those are hypothetical because one can't really measure down to those levels, but um but basically, the theory is that that um, that there is a, a starting with something, there is a direct a linear relationship, a proportionate relationship, and so that's uh, that's the linear non-threshold dose response relationship, and that's in contrast to a threshold dose response, in which there has to be a certain level of uh, exposure exceeded before a significant deviation from the uh, uh, the background or the control comparison group is uh, is seen so you have really two um, two ways of looking at exposures uh, and at least within this framework uh, one being the uh, the linear that you mentioned and one being the threshold which uh, was the second example that I gave
0: so in terms of a mathematical function is it actually is it actually asserting that it's a linear function or just that there's some kind of Causation, but it could take any number of of uh, curves or straight lines.
1: Uh, it's a it's a linear function.
0: So this seems just in a common sense way very implausible. I mean, we have you know historically the idea that that the poison is the dose, and you know we have just phenomena in normal life of if you eat X amount of something, it's fine or even healthy, and then if you eat ten X of something, it causes. Uh, a lot of problems and that the effects can be totally different in kind. How is, just how do, there's a lot of other use cases that have to do with, you know, radiation and other things, but just in a common sense way, how does LNT just grapple with the fact that we don't experience those things linearly?
1: Well, I think that uh, the the linear dose response is, uh, it's a belief function. Um, It's uh, not really very... uh, um, it's not based upon studies that can actually get down to those very, very low levels. And so it becomes uh, an extrapolation procedure. And so, I mean, basically, you know, when we're looking at uh, you know, where where this came to be, um, o- originally this was, uh, this was, um, really came out of studies that were in the radiation side, um, probably based upon uh, exposures at the low end which were which were probably 300,000 to 400,000 fold above background and and uh, and going up further people saw a, a linear dose response relationship in in fruit flies uh, mature in the uh, mature spermatogonia of fruit flies and then made uh, <coughs> made basically extrapolations down to, to zero essentially and, um, and, and, and it was a belief function. And so, and so, uh, a whole, uh, ideas and, and systems are built a, a around that belief function. And, 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 and others, uh, actually, actually, the interesting thing along, along the same line is that, I mean, there were smart people that, that made these ideas up and it's, and, and you can't trivialize their ideas. Um, and so, for example, um, even though there were massive extrapolations over, you know, orders of magnitude of dose, um, where you couldn't really t- study what was going on at low doses, but but uh, these investigators tried to get at this uh, this linear dose response concept through other means and came up with you know some interesting experiments to 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 support their position and they actually did support their position. For example. Um, Dr. Herman Muller, who was really the, 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 the key architect of, of this linear dose response relationship, even though he had proclaimed uh, linearity as his basic belief uh, back around 1930, a few years after he discovered that radiation could cause mutation, and he developed the term uh, proportionality rule, which was essentially just another word for a linear dose response relationship. Now, now, what he did with studies later on in the 1930s was that that he um, he wanted to see if dose rate um, affected the the uh, mutational outcome in studies, and, and as compared to total dose. So, in studies, uh, he had students take a, a fairly substantial, I'll call it a massive, massively large. Um, uh, Dose of, uh, radi- of X-rays, and and, and measured the amount of mutational damage in the um, mature uh, spermatozoa of fruit flies. Now he then took the same dose, total dose, but he uh, spread it out over a prolonged period. And his view was that if you if you um, his view was that if if a linear dose response was accurate, then there should be no repair and that uh, all damage should be cumulative. And if you spread that exposure out over a long period of time, then ultimately you should get the same amount of damage that you would get if you gave it all at one time. And that would support an LNT uh, relationship without having to do uh, extremely large studies and try to go down to extremely, extremely low doses. And when he did this work, he he, he actually supported his position. He found that, that the damage... Uh, when you, when you spread it all out in small increments, uh, small doses, all adding up to the big dose, they got uh, pretty much exactly the same amount. And so he came away with the belief that, in fact, uh, wow, I think LNT is supported. And, and, and it was a rather you know, interesting um, approach. It was, a, it was the right experiment to, to move it ahead. And so as, the, as we came from the 1930s into the 1940s, um, that was really uh, the key basis for, for why, you might say, smart people, um, you know, biologically trained, genetically trained people uh, bought into the LNT phenomenon. And so and that and, and, and that would become, uh, that would become um, the framework upon which essentially everything uh, is built today. Now, now, there will be um, challenges to this. And inadequacy showed in this, and a lot of my subsequent work goes in to show where, in fact, um, uh, problems came into uh, these types of studies are in terms of uh, Muller's uh, incorrect, uh, in my opinion, incorrect extrapolation from the model that he used. But I just wanted to, at least in the beginning, to to establish uh, a framework that, that LNT was uh, yeah, it was built based on a belief system initially, but then he came up with some experimental data that um, that that supported his position and that and that gave them the the scientific framework to believe that there was a, a strong basis to support LNC. All
0: right, I definitely want to come back to those experiments and then your your, your thoughts on them and then your subsequent research. Uh, but just to give some more background, you you indicated the universality of this. How widely is LNT used, and I guess the broader question is, how widely is this threshold issue relevant?
1: Uh, this, this, uh, this is this, this is fundamental to to how uh, in, industrialized societies live and and how we we make decisions about what we do in our personal lives. Every single um, i would say uh, advanced, semi advanced country in the world today that has a regulatory uh, um, programs for dealing with uh, exposure to drugs or exposure to chemicals in the air, drinking water and food, pesticide applications, um, medical device uses and things of this nature this, the technology developments, these are these are all fit into, into uh, evaluations that relate to um, um, occupational exposure and, and and consumer exposure to, to these types of uh, agents, whether they're technology, whether it's uh, physical ionizing radiation, whether it's uh, chemicals that we are exposed to, not, uh, medical treatments that we that we need to uh, uh, undergo, uh, these are these are driven by um, by decisions uh, concerning risk, and those uh, risk decisions are are really framed within whether we have. Um, a linear dose response or a threshold dose response or one that I'm looking at quite a bit is a hormetic dose response. So there are three are competitors out there. The ones that have won the, the state, so to speak, are adopted by, by the regulatory agencies are the, um, the, the threshold model, which um, which is applied to essentially all all substances that, uh, that do not cause cancer but cause other kinds of toxicities. Uh, and those which do cause cancer, uh, and uh, and for those that do cause cancer, their risk is evaluated with regards to a a linear dose response. And since it is linear, uh, what that would mean is that you could never have a safe level of exposure. And so when regulatory agencies look at carcinogens, they they never come up with a safe level of exposure. They come up with an acceptable level of exposure. An acceptable level of exposure. Well, it's pretty subjective, but generally speaking. Regulatory agencies seem to say somewhere between one cancer per 100,000 to one cancer per million over the course of a normal lifespan is, quote-unquote, uh, uh, de minimis risk or acceptable level of risk, mostly because they, they really can't be measured. And so, but, but nonetheless, uh, when you're dealing with, a, with a, uh, an agent that is deemed to be a carcinogen, um, Um, That is the framework within which it is evaluated.
0: Um, I just want to express a thought that listeners might find useful, which is that this kind of framework has enormous emotional appeal to anyone who has an issue with industrialization. Uh, Because if you can claim that byproducts are cancerous in almost any quantity, then you can always oppose things as cancerous. And, and you see that basically every major industrial technology, uh, particularly in energy, is is opposed as this is causing cancer, this this kills so many people through cancer, versus a threshold response where industry could get to a point with any given technology where it could say, well, there's no real safety um, issue. So I just always find it interesting to think of where certain viewpoints have incentives uh, to align with other viewpoints. I'm, I'm curious what you think of that.
1: Well I, I think that I think you're right and I think that it's you know how humans respond to this is is very strange in the in the sense that me, my state of Massachusetts uh one week ago uh, voted to uh essentially legalize uh the sale and use of uh of uh, recreational marijuana and if you take a look at the um uh studies and you can take a look at risks of lung cancer things of this nature uh that uh, the the risk of uh, developing certain kinds of cancers, you know, has been shown in various types of studies, but and it would tend if you believe the LNT theory, it would uh, it would relate it would fit it would fit fit in, and yet uh, the the citizens of, of this this state that tend to be very strong environmentally uh, voted very strongly to to support the legalization of uh, of another carcinogen into the uh, Um, you know into use and so but they may they may strongly oppose you know exposures to to other types of carcinogens um, tied into uh, you know some fear of uh, a risk of uh, you know one in a hundred thousand or one in a one in a million that they you know you can't really measure and so so there's a there's a psychological component to this that is uh, uh, that really needs to be understood and studied it's uh, something that that I don't do but 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 you can see some some of these uh, behavioral or voting disparities that uh, kind of make you um, you know scratch your head and try to figure out um, how do people process information about risk and dose response and and uh, what are some of these uh, i say personal and perhaps sociological or or political factors that that could uh, enter into this.
0: To what extent is carcinogen A legitimate concept, because it seems that if threshold response is true, then it could be very misleading to say something is a is a carcinogen. And just in if if we look at other contexts, and we take things that are you know dangerous in some quantity. I mean, is like is water a killer? I mean, if you drink too much water, you can die. So is water a killer? Like, does it make sense to classify something that's dose dependent uh, for its danger as Inherently, it seems like carcinogen means. I mean, is the definition that it can cause cancer in a certain dose? Because it sounds like people interpret it as it will cause cancer or it does cause some cancer.
1: Well, I think that that's an interesting uh, you know point that you raise, and that is that um, I think that if you classify something as a carcinogen, then then um, usually because regulatory agencies have. Have uh, built this upon an assumption of a linear dose response. There's uh, there's no need for a qualifier. However, if you actually say that um, uh, that it depends on dose and that it could be uh, a threshold or it, it acts hormetically, then uh, just because it has the capacity to cause cancer uh, doesn't mean that. Uh, um that all doses you know, p- you know will pose a risk or that the risk is proportionate to the dose and and things of that nature so i i think that i think it's fine to classify something as a carcinogen but i think that one needs to actually uh have a, a more sophisticated understanding of the biology of carcinogen than just to say the word carcinogen and then to to put the big uh A fearful label over that because because like like everything else the the response will be highly dependent upon the dose and and that's the same thing for mutation and and um, and we are one thing that we tend to forget in life and that is that is that um, we're here on this earth and and we are an evolved species like other species and that uh, we are the survivors and that built into our capacity for survive are a whole series of adaptive responses one of those adaptive responses happens to be uh, the capacity to repair genetic damage or dna damage that has been induced by mutagens carcinogens and that uh, uh, and this is a very significant aspect to uh to permitting us to survive and 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 actually to permit uh, a mechanistic explanation for why one would not expect to see uh a linear dose response, and why one would be more likely to see a threshold-type response.
0: Just to ask another word question, how do you feel this applies to toxic? So I, I noticed that in my writing, I, I wouldn't refer to things as you know, toxic chemical, toxic substance, because it seemed like you could have you know, a toxic dose, or you could talk about something as having high toxicity, that is, it tends to be toxic in smaller doses than something else but toxic it just seems like we start to classify things as this is inherent like this substance is sort of mystically safe and this is mystically dangerous and and the use of toxic seems to be another example of that maybe even more widespread than carcinogenic
1: well i think that that probably grew up out of the uh, the um you know, kind of the 1970s and the regulatory climate in this country and perhaps in Europe. Um, now, as environmental regulations came to take a, um, you know, firm um, articulation within society with all kinds of legislation, and um, and and there was there was also the view at that time that that nature was benign, and that uh, and so you know it was man-made chemicals that were our um, our real bane here and we had to you know how to use them and and essentially we're dealing with the regulation of toxic substances toxic man-made uh, made agents but as it turns out uh, in work that uh, that came out of a lot of sources uh, uh, came to realize that that actually um, natural compounds are are uh, essentially just as toxic as man-made compounds and that uh, um plants have to defend themselves and animals have to defend themselves and especially in the world of of plants there's uh, all kinds of natural uh, toxins and natural um, um, insecticides and, and other other uh, agents that could cause toxicities to other biological systems and and that there's a, a dynamic that is going on that uh, um, that ultimately becomes trying to understand, you know how biological systems deal with threats, how they, they metabolize and detoxify these, how they repair damage. Uh, and also, one thing that's becoming apparent from really the mid-1990s to the present time, and that is that even if you have something <coughs> that is inherently toxic, such as a, a reactive oxygen, or you have uh, compounds such as um, carbon monoxide, or hydrogen sulfide, or formaldehyde, and, and others, that, that, that these are uh, these are products that actually the body uses for for normal function, and without them, in fact, we uh, we do not survive very well. And uh, furthermore, there there are studies called what they call cosmic silence studies, in which organisms from the paramecia up to rodents uh, have been studied in situations in which background radiation, cosmic radiation, has been uh, Eliminated from the uh, exposure, and and what's found is that when you actually eliminate this um, this uh, essentially ionizing radiation, which no dose is supposed to be to be safe, you find that these animals, when they do not receive it, they their um, their performance, their health becomes uh, starts to degenerate. Uh, Paramecia, for example uh become sluggish they don't look healthy they 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 don't they eat properly they don't take up nutrients properly they 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 don't they stop reproducing you reintroduce the radiation back into their into their environment and they become healthy and uh, perform much much better and it it's led these uh these findings have led the, the researchers to suggest that in fact low low doses of ionizing radiation are are essential for uh for life And that life has evolved and found a way to incorporate them into uh, some uh, molecular utility, and this is true for, as I mentioned, for uh, reactive oxygen species that can be generated by uh, endogenous metabolism, by the following exposure to, uh, also following exposure to various types of uh, chemicals and ionizing radiation, and and. and in fact, if you if you quench the activity of some of these reactive oxygen species by the use of high levels of antioxidant vitamins and the like, you can profoundly and adversely affect um, um, the biological functioning. And so I I think that you know life is life is very uh, interesting in how it it uh, tries to um, uh, it's you know how it's evolved and and, and try to accommodate. Ways to take advantage of harmful things and to protect itself from harmful things and and ultimately, um, the concept of an lNT is is really uh, one that for the most part conceptually um, you know is is really inconsistent with a uh, I think understanding of um, evolutionary biology
0: so we've we've talked in some depth about um, no threshold response and a little bit about threshold response. But then there's also hormetic uh, response. So you, you've, I mean, you, I think you've indicated uh, cases of that. But uh, talk us through what hormetic response is.
1: A, a hormetic response, as I as I like to talk about it, is a uh, it's a dose response relationship, but it's a biphasic dose response relationship. So it has two phases. It has a, a stimulatory phase and it has an inhibitory phase. And, um, and this biphasic dose response relationship is, it's not just any type of biphasic dose response. What I've learned over time uh, and with much, much study is that this low dose stimulation actually is, is modest. It usually is no more than twice what you would have uh, uh, beyond the background response. I mean, so if a, if a plant is growing, um, I don't know, ten inches in a growing season, the most you could probably increase a response would be double that up to twenty. But generally speaking, it's only by about thirty to sixty percent at most. So it's really a very modest in the percentage zone uh, increase. And now, now the interesting thing here is is that it has a long history. Uh, it goes back approximately a hundred and uh, hundred and thirty years, started in northern Germany and uh, and there have been many thousands of, uh, of studies that have been done that have demonstrated hormetic dose responses. And, and now it, 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 the problem with hormesis is really historical. And, and that is that, that when hormesis was first put forth as a concept, which was really in the, the mid 1880s in Germany, the person who did this was a, a fine scientist. But, but what he he um proclaimed was that he believed that he had discovered the uh, explanatory principle of the medical um practice called homeopathy and the medical practice of homeopathy was in great competition at the time with what we call today traditional medicine and and, and the guy's name was hugo schultz that, that made this this proclamation and he had very good data to support his position he he was you for anybody in the audience ever, who knows what Listerine is, you know the mouthwash. Listerine is really named after uh, Dr. Joseph Lister, and uh, who was a physician, surgeon uh, in in uh, the UK and Britain, uh, and he lived in the mid to late um, 1900s, and he died in I think around ni- 1911. And and he developed aseptic surgery. And, and he used, uh, you know, chemical to kill, uh, microbes, uh, based upon, you know, his understanding of Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch's research at that time. Now, now he needed, uh, he, the chemical that he was using to disinfect wasn't particularly great, wanted some alternatives. Hugo Schultz was looking at alternatives. And, and he thought that, that any, any, uh, I might say disinfectant would uh, kill things in a linear sort of a fashion. But when he studied these with with the yeast models, he found that, yes, at high doses, they would kill the yeast. But at low doses, every one of them actually stimulated the survival and metabolism of the yeast. And so that really struck him as as he thought he made a mistake. And so he redid and redid and redid and replicated and replicated his work and kept coming up with these biphasic dose responses. And he thought, this is real, I guess. But what Schultz did at that point was that is that uh, for other reasons, he linked those findings to homeopathy. And that was, uh, just to give you one little bit more, and, and that was that at the, about the same time, there was a paper published in a homeopathic journal that, was, um, that showed that a homeopathic preparation um, was successful in, in the uh, treatment of gastroenteritis. At, just at that time, the, um, the bacteria that causes gastroenteritis had been discovered and cultured, Schultz got the bacteria, took the homeopathic drug to see if it could be if it to kill those bacteria, and found that it didn't kill them at all, at all, no matter how it, what dose he gave. And so some people might have said, well, the homeopathic drug really wasn't effective, but Schultz didn't take that view. He just didn't know why it wasn't effective. But but actually, what he what he does is that he sees this yeast study, which shows low doses are enhancing uh, survival, high doses are harmful. And he sees this homeopathic drug that was successful, but doesn't really kill the bacteria. And so Schultz comes to this, 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 this insight in which he says, ah, I think I know how homeopathic and maybe other drugs work. And that is they, they don't kill the bacteria, but they enhance the adaptive capacity of the organism to resist the infection. And so he develops this, this, uh, this idea that, that in fact, uh, these drugs act in a biphasic way. And, and so he proclaims that he has discovered the sense of the um, uh, essentially explanatory principle of homeopathy. And well, as it turns out, because he, he then sided with the enemy, which was the homeopathic community, the traditional medical community, they disowned him, they marginalized him, and they really tried to destroy his career. And he fought back and so forth. But, but what they did was they tried to ruin him, and they tried, and they were for sure were not going to accept uh, his understanding of the dose response, which was a biphasic dose response. So you cannot accept the, the, the explanatory principle of, of the opposition. And so over time, what happened is that traditional medicine had to have their own dose response. So they basically uh, eventually converged on acceptance of the threshold dose response model. And that became central to what I call traditional medicine and adopted by the medical community. And that particular threshold model was then challenged in the late 1920s and early 1930s by Herman Muller and other geneticists who claimed that, in fact, ionizing radiation acted not via a threshold, but acted via a linear dose-response relationship. And and so we actually had then the emergence of, of three dose responses within the scientific community, one that was tried and true, which was really the threshold. And then we had, you know, the hormesis one or the biphasic one, which was basically relegated to uh, being marginalized. And and then we have this new kid on the block, which was the linear dose response model, that ultimately, you know, would become um, uh, accepted by regulatory agencies for a variety of reasons down the road. And so, and it's within this this uh, dynamic of um, the history of medicine and the history of science and and the complexities of, of uh, this warfare between two, two medical communities, the homeopath and, and the traditional medicine people, that, that our understandings of dose response and of the acceptance of dose response happens, and yet this whole history is forgotten within, uh, within um, toxicological text and pharmacological text. And they have no idea why we don't believe and uh, don't accept or don't recognize a hormetic dose response and, and why we have uh, evolved into a, a bifurcation of, of dose responses, that is the, the threshold for everything that's non-carcinogenic and the LNT for everything that's carcinogenic. And then uh, the hormetic the, the kid, which actually proves to be a much stronger biological uh, explanatory factor than the other two models, becomes, becomes left out. And, and it's in the last 20 years or so in which we have spent a considerable amount of time re-investigating and studying in this biphasic dose response mode uh, that we came to realize <clears throat> the historical issues and the and the uh, and and actually the greater strength of the hormetic dose response model in explaining what goes on at low doses far better than either the threshold or the uh, the linear dose response model.
0: I have a follow-up on hormetic response, but just so everyone has the context, could you give a quick summary of um, what was the uh, what was the wrong theory? I, it's, it, it just escaped me oh the homeo the homeopathic uh, theory.
1: Uh, could you repeat that question, please? Oh, you
0: were, I'm I'm forgetting the term, but you're the what is it? The homeopathic theory or the um... yeah
1: yeah yeah it was it was uh, he proposed it to be the. The an explanatory uh, um, principle of the medical practice of homeopathy, and and at the same time, just it, life life gets actually very complicated in the sense that even though you know Schultze pr- proposed this to to um, to explain uh, you know how homeopathic drugs work, Schultz himself was was actually was was not a a real uh, acceptor of of extreme homeopathic uh, principles as well because taking to its extreme in, in the homeopathic world uh, um, advocates of that perspective claim that 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 uh, exposures could, could induce effects at, at minuscule levels even at levels that were below what we might call Avogadro's number that is even even in in the samples that may not even theoretically have a uh, have a single molecule in it and 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 this became very very controversial uh of course it still is controversial today and Schultz never never believed in uh in the extreme um perspective tied into uh, what I'd say the a home that type of homeopathic perspective he believed in homeopathic medicine but very closely aligned to what I call traditional medicine and that is that, that everything has a dose response and but and that it and it and it requires uh, you know a substantial number of molecules to induce that type of response. And and but and in the low dose zone that he viewed the at low doses that that most uh, stressful uh, stressor agents are act- actually upregulating adaptive uh, processes that 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 essentially create a resilient phenotype that essentially results in protecting those cells in those organisms, and at higher doses, the those agents actually can be inhibitory. Or are in fact, at very high doses, they can uh, they can actually become uh, harmful or toxic. And so, and so, the, the the history of science with respect to the dose response relationship is is not you, you might say, pardon the expression, a straight line here. It's it's uh, it's it's a very dynamic. There's a number of personalities and competing groups going in. And, and and I think we have we have actually ferreted out the complexity of this and have written quite a bit about this in, in our publication, so that it it should be it should be fairly clear if people read <laughs> what we have written on it. But for the most part, the toxicologists and pharmacologists and people in regulatory agencies uh, they they have uh, literally uh, extremely poor knowledge of the history of their fields, and that's because for the most part. Uh, the history of the field, the history of dose response, has been uh, has been one that has not been emphasized, not been done, and and uh, now we have, we have we've we've uh, been able to get into some of the major textbooks with with this information, and I'm, I'm hopeful that the next generation of toxicologists and pharmacologists may actually have proper schooling in the history of their field, especially with regards to to these complexities with respect to dose response, and, and how, their, how their belief systems came to be with respect to threshold and linearity. And these are belief systems which are actually based upon uh, inaccurate information and false understandings and have led to regulations which are improperly based.
0: Um, so I, that's really fascinating how... Uh, people took just how homeopathy in the, in the sense of these vanishingly small doses being helpful, uh, you know, being helpful, like they sort of took that and then used it to, uh, damn, uh, what's called, um, damn hormetic response. Uh, In terms of hormetic response, I think you've used this example and I, I've used this example too. Just something like sunlight just seems to be an obvious case of it and it logically just makes the most sense just thinking even with a layman's idea of the causality of the body that they're all the, the, you're, you're, you have a system and it's got all these different drivers and that with many things you need a certain amount of it to be a healthy system and then if you have too little of it it's not healthy and if you have too much of it it's not healthy. So that would very much follow the hormetic thing for many men in the body has all kinds of different substances in it. Um, so it makes, makes total sense. Uh, and I guess one question is where can, what's a good place for, you mentioned the research, what's a good place for people to learn about the research?
1: Well, I think that uh, on the, on the technical side, I, I, I think that, uh, I mean, I'll say since we started, um, uh, Getting a lot of publicity on uh, hormetic dose response information in the technical journals. We uh, essentially our work has led to probably seven or eight people writing um, writing books, uh, mostly not very technical books, but somewhat popular books that have come out on on uh, hormesis or things uh, closely related to hormesis. Um, I was a co-editor of one of these with a fellow from the National Institute of Aging on, uh, Mark Mattson on, on hormesis. But, but there are, there's a handful plus others and, and, and several more I know coming out, uh, within the next, uh, six months or so by other people. So they're, they're, they're getting information out into, um, out into the general literature, uh, in the form of, in the form of books. Uh, that, um, that I think people could find. I, 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 I have, uh, you know, there are uh, actually a, a lot of uh, general articles now that are, that are out there that you know, if one had a familiarity with scientific literature, um, you could get a nice broad overview to it. I, I think just going on, on, on the web and looking up hormesis and hormetic within, um, within Google, Get you there. Uh, I have to tell you, every single day when I when I wake up, I go down, I I check my I check my email first, and I go on PubMed, and I type in hormesis or hormetic, and see what comes up for the day. And so, so I I check every single day of the week, and I'm always looking for you know what's happening uh, across the, the whole globe, and and so forth. But it depends on a person's level of interest. Whether you're a technical person or you're just kind of superficially interested in this, other people, you know, there are very knowledgeable people who have who have very, you know, fancy, uh, sophisticated, but but communicate well blogs on 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 these issues. I, I don't have one, but but uh, but but they're and you know they they have a view, and you don't have to agree with everything they write, but they're they're intelligent, informed, have a perspective, and and I and I think that. In the course of in the course of learning, I don't think you read one person or one thing. I think in these topics you try to read as broadly and as much as you possibly can, because I think that then you begin able to uh, to to look at consistencies and inconsistencies and how things fit together well. So I the the process of getting educated on on anything, including the dose response, including hormesis, is is not trivial and it's not easy. I think. It's a commitment to trying to understand it and try to uh, figure things out so I I, I would um, I would say I mean I certainly could could recommend a a paper or two that I might have written but but that's but that's not how you really become uh, broadly and uh, more sophisticated in terms of becoming educated you just have to read very widely and be committed to to uh, uh, you know, taking two steps forward and one step back, and two steps forward and one step back, and broadening yourself and and being excited about that quest for knowledge.
0: Um, yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, I think I think there's that that can apply uh, to just about any field. So, very quickly, what happened with the original experiment with the different doses? So, you know, where you had the additive, the, the doses adding up to the larger dose and the the effect seemed to be the same. Muller's experiment.
1: I'm uh, going way back when this this crucial, brilliant experiment by Hermann Muller back in the late 1930s. Okay, so what's actually happened to that? Well, actually, Muller made it. You know, he he was he's a brilliant guy, and many other smart guys with him kind of bought into his view. And now the story is complicated, but I but I'll try to kind of cut through the complication and. And, and, kind of tell you what his mistake was, okay? His mistake was that, that he, um, he did his work with mature spermatozoa in the fruit fly. Now, the fruit fly is okay, probably, uh, for, as a, as a biological model. Um, but the issue that, that he was working with here was that when you work with spermatis, mature spermatozoa, the very latest stage, Prior to when the sperm fertilizes um, the, the egg. Uh, he didn't know this at the time, but but the mature spermatozoa actually has had all its essentially all its cytoplasm squeezed out of it. And it becomes basically uh, a little squiggly thing that carries DNA that fertilizes an egg. And and if there is damage to that DNA through chemicals ionizing radiation. Uh, it doesn't have the capacity to repair itself and so any damage that you have is going to be retained now one thing he also didn't know is that you know why would why would mother nature have selected for this over billions of years of evolution and and what what emerges from this is that is that the uh, the genome of the uh, of the egg actually has a full complement of DNA repair and can for the most part uh, Deal with, uh, um, deal with repairing genetic damage that is brought into this relationship from the sperm. Now, and so there's a trade-off that's made in, an evol- in evolutionary terms be- between uh, the efficiency of sperm <coughs> moving and ultimately fertilizing eggs and the capacity to prevent against damage. And, and so we see that, that, that compromise there. But where Mueller's mistake was and other people's mistakes, was that uh, later on when, uh, and this was uh, 1958, <clears> this <throat> fellow uh, William uh, Russell, who was at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, he he actually did work with mice, and he and he worked with uh, uh, an, a younger, more uh, immature stage of the sperm called the spermatogonia, and and they have, and what he found there was that in fact, uh, if you if you did the same type of an experiment. And you, you had the total dose, and you, and you um, essentially drew that dose out into a, a, a much lower dose rate experiment. You found that, that, that essentially uh, um, the, the, the damage didn't add up. That, that in fact, if you gave the dose at a, at a low dose rate, it, it, it would not accumulate to what that, that total dose given all at once were. And in fact, in the females, at the dose rate they gave, which was still about 4,000 fold, uh, fold above background, it, it was really a threshold. In fact, so if you lower the dose rate enough in the female uh, female mouse, um, and it was still not that low a dose rate, uh, you you found a rate at which the body was somehow able to repair that damage. Now, we didn't even know about DNA repair at that time. Uh, and later on in 1962, four years later, the beginnings of finding DNA repair actually uh, actually, was made, and those discoveries led to the Nobel Prize on that topic in 2015. But the the point here is that is the dose rate became uh, uh, became very significant. And 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 what happened with Mueller and others is that they once they 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 convinced themselves and the world community that the dose response was a linear dose response. They did this totally on the basis of the the male spermatozoa that had all the cytoplasm squeezed out and and, and, a lot, and lost its DNA repair. What they then did was they extrapolated over to all somatic cells, all body cells, and, and applied the linear dose response, and therefore it became to focus on the cancer endpoint. Yet all the other somatic cells would have had a full complement of DNA repair, and therefore would not have shown that linear dose response. So our initial thinking that came to establish LNT was actually based upon the use of uh, extrapolation with the the male spermatozoa that that had lost its DNA and then extrapolated that onto somatic cells that had a full complement of DNA, and it was the absolute inappropriate thing to do. And and our our, uh, regulations are based upon you know, essentially, that mistake, and as the twig is bent, so grows the tree, and and, and and essentially, you know, it's it's hard to believe that in fact uh, uh, this has happened and it hasn't been corrected, and and there are other other mistakes along the way that are are so glaring that that, that uh, uh, provide the the scientific foundation. For why our current regulatory um, programs are flawed, so and need to be corrected.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's just. I mean, if I hadn't th- seen other shocking things in other al- branches of science and other fields of study, I, I would be even more shocked. Uh, as as we close, I'm interested in the application of this to uh, the field that I've studied most, which is energy and in particular fossil fuels. So on a routine basis, you'll just read some statistic in the paper saying, you know, use of this causes 4 million deaths a year from cancer or something like that. Um, And my understanding is these are all um, LNT-based things. And I really don't see the causality that they're claiming. I mean, I can see causality if you have a certain amount of smoke in the air and I see people get sick and maybe you could tie that. But they, they often talk about, you know, doses that I've been around, you know, of say coal plants, like doses where I've been fairly close to the plant and there's not much perceptible. And then they claim, oh, we can tell that this many people died of cancer. What What is the legitimacy of those?
1: Well, those, uh, those, Proclamations are, are really based upon uh, extrapolations, and those extrapolations are based on the assumption of a linear dose response in the low dose zone. And and essentially, you know, they when they make these proclamations, they're making those proclamations about what they think is happening in a human population. And the one thing you have to recognize is that epidemiology is not capable of essentially detecting risk. Uh, detecting very low risks. And in fact, in courts of law in this country, in, that you cannot claim cause and effect relationship with epidemiologic data um, with, with risks that are uh, less than double um, the control group. And what we're really, I mean, that's like increased by 100%. Yet, yet what you're talking about here are when people say, oh, we have risks of one in a million, one in 10,000. A one in a thousand, one in a hundred. We're, we're really, I mean, those are one in a hundred. I mean, epidemiology can't get, can't get down to those levels. And yet, these are where the projections are, are going. And where a court of law is requiring that it has to be increased by a factor of, uh, you know, um, essentially, um, increased by a hundred percent. And, and this is because of all the, number one, the confounding variables that, that humans bring to the equation we have different diets we have different genetic backgrounds we we don't understand what our past exposures have been we don't understand stress we can't quantify you know how, much, how many hours we sleep each night and how that's changed over time or or what our diets have been and all these things create variability and uncertainty and they create when you have low risks all those that background noise can can just makes it difficult to to detect anything that that could be real and that's why the court says you really have to see, uh, you know, damage that is, uh, that is double background before we, we begin to think that it's, it's causally correct. Yet, yet these extrapolations that, that, that are commonly made extrapolate not just from, from uh, a hundredfold the bug background, uh, or double it, but they're going down to, you know, risks that approach one in a million and one in a hundred thousand or one in some number that, that epidemiology cannot possibly detect and and so these these are mostly um, belief systems uh, that are tied into uh, a, you know precautionary principle or a protectionist philosophy and and it's actually it's not science the the, the strongest scientific research that that exists to date is actually the, the types of things that we have looked at and those these are experimental studies uh, that have documented uh, responses in low-dose zones that are, and for the most part, they really uh, show that the linear model and in the threshold model do not predict low-dose responses not nearly as well as the biphasic paramedic dose response.
0: Um, what Do you have any of those for, say, particulate matter?
1: I, I have seen... Uh, uh, I have seen people who have looked at hormesis in relationship to particulate matter, and have, uh, um, in, in some of their studies, have shown hormetic dose responses, um, and 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 so have made the claim. I, I actually have not studied particulate matter with regards to uh, hormetic dose response relationships, uh, mostly because. Uh, I, I am not particularly interested in epidemiology myself, just because of the limits of epidemiology that I just kind of uh, laid out. I, I am mostly interested myself in in experimental studies, in which you can control essentially all the variables except the one thing that you are looking at. And so, uh, so the the studies that I have seen that that have uh, shown particulate matter and, and, and actually demonstrating in these studies hermetic dose responses, I, I believe that they also suffer from the same potential types of criticisms of others who would, uh, who would claim perhaps um, uh, a threshold or perhaps maybe even a linear response. But I, I believe that you you can, you can uh, better get at these from a theoretical point of view and other point of view uh, experimentally. And the experimental data, Really uh, would be much uh, would be supportive of a hormetic dose response, even with, with particulates and, and with uh, our threshold as compared to uh, an LNT. And this would be not just those, but essentially in in a very general sense, so uh, wide range of toxins, uh, wide range of chemical or or physical agents. It's the the, um, the the strongest overall consistent dose response relationship is really the hormetic dose response.
0: Well, I first learned about hormetic dose response when I was reading back issues of access to energy by Peter Beckman. And at the time it seemed like it made total sense and it was frustrating that almost nobody else talked about it. So I think it's, you know, it's really uh, something we shall be grateful for that you've done all of this research and... To overcome this incredibly irrational thing, and you indicated this before, but this—it's hard to think of anything that's more wide-ranging than this because it's—it's it's just an issue that it, it's a—it's a wrong model of thinking that applies to all kinds of different health issues, you know, with potentially anything that's carcinogenic at least, and it's—it's it's, I mean, basically it's something that makes us think that healthy things are unhealthy and that healthy things, healthy things are unhealthy and that unhealthy things are healthy.
1: Well, you know, the big area in the world today in terms of research is is an area called what we call adaptive response or preconditioning. And in in this framework, what happens is that low levels of exposure to to almost any kind of stressor agent, whether it's chemical, whether it's pharmaceutical, mechanical, dietary, or otherwise, low levels of, of stress they they affect an upregulation of uh, of adaptive mechanisms and those adaptive mechanisms lead to the uh, creation of what i call a resilient phenotype that exists for days and perhaps maybe out oh to weeks under certain circumstances that, that ultimately protect you against uh, all sorts of uh, of external and internal st- uh, stressors and and, and to the point where these now are being manipulated to protect against the occurrence of heart attack stroke uh, damage from shock uh, you know you could you could precondition um, uh, stem cells you can precondition uh, uh, you know, essentially skin before you graph it and if, if you graph it after you precondition it, it it takes better uh, surgical uh, stress could be uh, and, and risk from surgery could be markedly reduced by uh, these kinds of things and, and and what what is really happening here is that there's a biological revolution that is taking place, and with respect to taking a look at low doses of stress and the and how though and how uh, within an evolutionary framework these have been um, incorporated into into our biology, our systems biology, to allow us to uh, uh, to survive uh, and certainly uh, before birth, after birth, and and into uh, well into adulthood and. Uh, uh, and, and learning how to to not be afraid of stress, but but it's the dose of stress, and and the body has found ways. And this is also with ionizing radiation and other agents. They they they, they act all within this framework as well. And this it really refutes in many ways the entire regulatory paradigm that uh, that assumes that there is no safe level to to uh, toxic substances and and you should avoid these at all costs when in fact uh, I'll go back to the to the cosmic silence experiment that I mentioned before when you take a look at just imagine these these uh par- paramecia but also mice as well being forced to live in a being forced to live in a world without ionizing radiation it sounds like a perfect world and those that are put into that world they die they're very unhealthy you reintroduce the bad thing into their life and they become very healthy it, it just, it just uh, shows the, the inconsistency of uh, the regulatory paradigm with the reality of biology and with evolution.
0: All right, Ed, we're going to have to end there. Thanks so much for putting forward scientific thinking about dosage, and thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you very much, and have a nice day.
0: Thanks again to Dr. Edward Calabries for being on the show. Uh, I think that's just such valuable information. Uh, he's such a great exponent of independent thought. Just think about the way that he, he recommended that you approach the issue. We're going to hunt down some of his particular works and show them to you. But he said, go look at the whole spectrum of things and, and see what you think. That's the way to develop an independent opinion. So I had a couple of thoughts during the interview that I didn't want to go into then because I wanted to hear what he had to say. Uh, But I think they're, they're thoughts that have come up in different ways for different subjects, but I think that they very much apply here. And these thoughts have to do with the government monopoly on science and then the public's uncritical attitude toward experts. So in terms of government monopoly on science, what we want in science is competition. We want people with different ideas to be competing on a market of ideas where they have to persuade the public they have to persuade different industrial concerns, they have to persuade their fellow scientists, they have to persuade journals that aren't controlled by the government in any way they have to persuade them of they have to persuade them that their view really corresponds to all the facts. But when the government dominates science as it does today, what you have to do is you have to persuade government officials that you are the expert, and then you get entrenched in the government and then because the government is funding so much of science, there's just this incredible inertia that uh, favors the entrenched idea even if it's even if it's bankrupt and so then you get these uncontested reports and uncontested studies, uncontested claims uh, which are then amplified and and propagated by the traditional media. And you just get all of this wrong information, and you see something like the linear no threshold, which which is just obviously wrong. And yet it's just, it's treated as gospel. People don't even know that there is a different theory. And and Dr. Calabrese mentioned that even the people in the field don't know that they're taking a particular position, that they're using a particular methodology that is, is you know not even dubious it's it's wrong but they don't even know that because they haven't worked in a competitive field their entire life in many many meaningful ways so this is just another example of how the government funding science is not some innocuous thing it's forcibly taking away the money of private citizens to institute a monopoly position and really Distort the way that research and thought occurs in a given field. And this is one where, um, you know, really billions of people are affected by these wrong views of dosages and thresholds. So it's really, really important. Um, I mentioned that I had two points. I, I, I should make a second point, which will then make three points. Uh, but just that. We should really appreciate what this individual is doing. I mean, he is really a leader in the field. As far as I can tell, he just conducts himself exceptionally. And this is such an important issue, such an overlooked issue. And uh, I'll certainly do my part to promote his work in my future endeavors and our company's future endeavors. But this is definitely worth spreading. He's not getting anywhere near the attention that he deserves. Uh, Although he is getting more and more attention and he seems indefatigable, which many people like this are. uh, But yeah, that's just, uh, this is somebody who's doing really, really great work and and we should appreciate that. Um, The final point has to do with the issue of experts. Now, I won't elaborate on this too much because it's in chapter one of the moral case for fossil fuels in terms of what should be the proper attitude toward experts, how experts should be advisors who explain things to us, not authorities who dictate things to us. Now, that's That's so important, and it's just something that needs to be taught throughout the culture, because the culture right now regards science as really not a process, not fundamentally a method of inquiry that then leads to a certain objectivity of conclusions. But it regards science as a set of conclusions, and even worse than that, really, it regards science as an institution that just tells us what to believe. So it has very much the the quality of the Catholic Church in terms of this is doctrine, and, you know, you it's from on high, and in this case, the high on high is "quote unquote" scientists. But you know, we have when we hear a study about oh, a hundred—you get all these things, this many deaths from air pollution. You just have no idea what is the methodology being used here. How was that uh, determined at all? And one one thing I'm grateful to Stefan Henn, my colleague, for is he's very good at spotting these methodological errors, both on the part of people we tend to disagree with and people we tend to agree with. So there's a common uh, set of claims about this many people die from respiratory illness, from indoor air pollution, including from dung and from wood every year. And he'll respond, okay, well, is that really proven? Like, uh, the, how, are, how are they coming up with these numbers? Are they having this many people in the hospital and, and the cause of death was air pollution? So it's not that there's nothing there. But we have to be really careful about what we know and what we don't know. And it's easy to construct these false mental models of, oh, this smoke is getting into this person's lungs and causing cancer. And even, you know, this amount of emission must be doing something bad. And often this is just not at all true. Uh, The body, you know, it's either pretty benign or the body repairs itself. You You need to know what you don't know. And as consumers, we need to know what experts know and don't know. And particularly because there's this government monopoly, there's not a competitive system. When we get these monolithic uh, claims, we really need to ask, hey, what exactly are you saying and how do you prove it? So once again, the commitment to independent thinking and the knowledge of how to process other people's claims is paramount in being a responsible citizen. Uh, I'm doing some writing on this behind the scenes, so you'll have some more guidance on that. But chapter one of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, I think, is a good guide. And uh, not to flatter myself too much, but the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels in general, methodologically, I think, is a good guide. That is, It it, it gives some of my own thought process and research process for understanding these issues for myself and, and distinguishing, among other things, between speculation and uh, demonstration or what's demonstrated. All right. So hopefully those are our valuable thoughts. Uh, Again, really grateful to Dr. Calabrese for coming on the program. Uh, As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at support at industrialprogress.net. That will go both to me and to my lovely assistant Nikki, who will make sure that whatever you send gets dealt with expeditiously. So support at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to be on our newsletter. That's the most important thing, industrialprogress.com. You can um, you can sign up in the upper right or you can just email support at industrialprogress.net and just say in the subject, newsletter. Of course, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. There's the Alex Epstein account, the I Love Fossil Fuels account, the Center for Industrial Progress account, and the I Love Nuclear account. And you know, we don't have these official sponsors of the show, but, uh, so I'm making our official sponsor, our own course, how to talk to anyone about energy. That's at energychampion.net. I'm quite sure that that is the most effective methodology ever developed for discussing energy and environmental issues with people, at least effective in terms of persuading people of the truth rather than scaring them and appealing to say celebrity authority like Leonardo DiCaprio's movie. Uh, but seriously, how to talk to anyone about energy, energychampion.net. Check it out. Watch the intro video. I highly recommend picking up a copy of that. I think it'll be super, super useful during the upcoming holiday season when you'll have the opportunity to avoid alienating a lot of people and, in fact, uh, magnetize a lot of people in the right direction. So energychampion.net, our quote-unquote sponsor, uh, helps support the show. Not really help support the show by doing that. Help support yourself by getting a copy of that course. All right, when will we be back? I do not know exactly, but if you keep giving positive feedback, it will make me more motivated. There are a lot of interesting guests, that potential guests that I've been talking to. Maybe next year, uh, almost certainly next year, we'll get a more regular schedule. Uh, I really appreciate everyone who listens. I'm recording this right before Thanksgiving or the Monday before Thanksgiving. Hopefully it'll be out before then. And I hope everyone has a happy Thanksgiving. And I hope you give thanks to those who deserve it most. And that would be the great industrialists who actually produce uh, all of the goods and the bounty that we enjoy and celebrate on Thanksgiving. So whomever else you're giving thanks to, make sure to give thanks to them because they don't get it nearly as much as they deserve. All right. With that. Some upcoming week we will be back. I promise the guest will be great. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
1: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.